0: We're turning our Bibles now to Romans chapter 12, going through the book of Romans, and we made it a few verses into chapter 12 uh, two weeks ago when I was last here, and uh, we'll pick up there. Mike, how'd the uh, Hispanic service go Sunday? Oh, praise the Lord. That's awesome. Romans 12, I think we made it through the first three verses of chapter 12. Um, but I'll go through those real quickly just to touch on them, to bring you up to snuff. I won't take the whole hour to do it. Paul is shifting gears here now, and on the basis of all of this doctrine that he's laid down and this glorious presentation of the gospel, now he's talking about, okay, now here's how you're supposed to live this. Here's what this life is going to look like when you're, when you're living by grace, and so He begs them on the basis of the mercies of God. And that's always the appeal, is look what God has done for you. He's not asking you to pay him back, but there should be a natural response to um, somebody who realizes how good God has been. And that response is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That is to take everything that you are, and you know that your body references everything that you are and lay that on the line for him willing to do what he wants you to do willing to treat your body in the way that he calls you to treat it recognize that it's his that it's a the temple of the holy spirit but your whole body being presented to him as a gift and and he says that's the logical thing to do that's that is something that is just a reasonable offer of worship is to take everything that you are and say, God, here you go. And really, that's the basis of our Christian commitment. About all I can commit is what I am right here and everything that this body involves. What I do with it, the time that I spend with it, the way that I consecrated and all of that—that's that's all I have, and that's what he wants to be committed to him, and not not to be a sacrifice that dies for him. I don't give up my body for him, but it's a living sacrifice. He goes, "Great, you get to participate in what I'm doing," and and um, <laughs> just saw somebody I haven't seen in a while, and <laughs> sorry to get distracted. But um, where was I? Oh, yeah. <laughs> to be a living sacrifice. To go, you don't give yourself to God and then he just smashes you or destroys you or puts you down. He just goes, okay, that's what I wanted. Now let's do this thing together. Let's, let's live life together. And, and so then he says, and, and here's the issue, don't be conformed to this world. Because what most of us do with our bodies is we do what the world tells us to do. We seek worldly things. We try to find worldly ways to satisfy ourselves. And what we do with our time and our energy and our gifts and everything else involves kind of what the world defines as what you ought to do. But he says, don't do that. In other words, I'm calling you to be different. I want to make a difference in your life and it should be a distinct difference so don't just let the world define you be transformed by the renewing of your mind so he wants us to be different and the way that we are primarily different is in the way we think the way you think determines the way you live and so he's saying I want to reprogram your head so that you're not just trapped in a pattern of what everyone else is doing. But I have something, I have a better way of thinking for you, and so this gives us an idea that he's going to present us with some ideas that he wants to put within our minds, but the renewing of our minds will then allow us to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Finding the will of God is really a natural outflowing of thinking God's thoughts, of, of being people who are allowing him to tell us what to think, and as we think like him, then our lives naturally reflect his will. And so then he says, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So he says, in rethinking how you think and reprogramming your mind and how you live your life, one of the first things that you're going to have to get out of your consciousness is this idea that the world revolves around you, that it's all about you, that you are the standard whereby everything else is judged. And throughout this chapter, really, he continues to remind us that It's not about you. It's not, you know, you have to let, if you're going to think differently, everyone in the world basically thinks that the universe revolves around them. He says, you're going to have to get over that. Don't think more highly than you ought to think. Now, there are some people who are really servants of God and really love people, and yet still, in some ways, they haven't figured out how to. Lower their expectations for themselves, and they still have a sort of an inflated sense of their own importance. I think we all do. It's the world programs us that way. If you've ever felt compelled to do things and you're afraid that if you don't do it, it's not going to get done, probably an indication that you're thinking a bit too highly of yourself. If you've ever driven yourself, past the point of discomfort into an area of almost misery because somebody has to do it, probably an an indication that you're thinking too highly of yourself. If you get offended often, if people say things and it just really hurts your feelings, a good indication of thinking a little too highly of yourself. You know, when you put yourself in a, in, a, in a realistic place, it's not putting yourself down, but it's putting yourself into the context that he is going to explain here as he talks about how different people have different gifts and, and all of that. But the, the idea is, if we can get over ourselves, we can actually be useful, and we can actually get along with other people. When we have problems getting along with other people, it's almost always because I think more highly of myself than I ought to think. If you do something that offends me, that upsets me, and my response to that is to, is to be really upset for a few days because I feel like you slighted me, I'm saying that you ought to have a higher opinion of me than I do. And that's a really helpless sort of place to be, ultimately, because the funny thing is, as I am pouting and upset, it causes you to think even less of me. The kind of people, and it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon, but the kind of people who are really respected by others are people who don't demand that kind of respect. They're people who, it's okay, you know, hey, treat me however you want. It's okay. I'm not the issue here. It's not a big deal. People love that kind of mental health because they see, okay, you're not overly sensitive. You're not putting yourself at the center. The word here for soberly that he says, you know, think soberly instead, is a word that means to have a right, healthy mind. It's it's a proper sort of thinking. It's Literally what the word means is not crazy. And so he's calling him right off the bat to go to discover that sweet spot of sanity where you can get over yourself, where you're not so sensitive, where you're always not getting offended, where you're always not worrying what people think of you, also. That whole people-pleasing thing that we so often get into is you know, somebody has said, you wouldn't worry so much about what people think of you if you realized how seldom they do think of you. (laughs) But that ought to be okay. I mean, why do I need to be so important? Why do we need to be at the center of attention being catered to by others? All that does is put pressure on you. The fact is, if I realize that, you know what, God has given me specific gifts and roles within the body, and I want to do what he's called me to do. But, man, if I went away tomorrow, God would be fine. You know, if I stopped doing what I did, if I just didn't show up, God would be totally fine. Now you go, wait, Dave, you're not going anywhere, are you? No, I'm not going anywhere, but you wish. But, (laughs) I mean, like, last Wednesday I was with Steve Bailey riding motorcycles in Yosemite. Now, it's really hard for me, honestly, and Steve kind of forced me to do this. Um, It's hard for me to miss a Wednesday. I mean, tonight, the city council is deciding whether or not we can do our building project, but I'm not there, I'm here, because I would rather be here. I love being here. But, you know, it's such a blessing for me to know that last Wednesday, while I was kind of feeling guilty about not being here... um, Kenny Krikak did an incredible Bible study that I listened to and just really enjoyed. And it's good for me to recognize that if I'm gone, so what? It's not that big of a deal. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to start taking off all the time. What it means is hopefully I don't labor with this pressure of feeling like it's about me. And, And that's what God wants us all to understand, if we could really learn true humility, if we could really learn the kind of mental healthy thinking that he's talking about here, thinking soberly, our lives would be so much better. Because we would be almost completely impervious to getting upset by others. And others are always going to do things that upset us. But anytime somebody does something that upsets you, it's like a A a horn should go off in your head. You are thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And so we've got to get over that. We've got to get past that hypersensitivity. We've got to get past that, you know, I, I had a, should I say this? Yeah, I guess it'll be okay. But I had a guy write to me, like, it was, I think, three or four months ago, three months ago. And he was sharing some of the concerns and things he's going through in his life and everything. And, and um, he said, I'd love, to, I'd love to sit down and talk with you. He heard me on the radio. I'd love to sit down and talk with you, um, or if not, then maybe we can email. And I'm like, okay, great. Uh, did you give me your email address? Did you give me your... I had no way of, of contacting the guy and the information that he had given me. So I still had the letter. I'm like, wait. I'm hoping I'm, you know, gonna run into this guy somewhere. Well, this week I got another letter from him, and he's just blasting me for. And I, I'm sure I'm not making light of his problems. I'm sure the guy's dealing with some difficulties. And but he's totally ripping on me, saying you're just like all those other radio preachers. I thought somehow you'd be different. I, you know, and still no email address. <laughs> no, and it's like. Hmm, well, what must it be like? Now, I did find an address that he used to live at, but he told me he doesn't live there anymore. But I, I wrote him back a letter and sent it to him, and I'm hoping somehow I'll be able to contact this guy. But how many times has that been you, where you just get so upset about something that the warrant, you know, you're, you're, you're shaken, and really all it does is show you, you know, what's your problem? why do you think you're that important? And so Paul Paul figured out that he didn't have to be a slave to what everyone else does or says or how they treat him. He just learned that if he if he would tend to shrink his own estimation of himself, not in an unhealthy sort of a way, I'm a doormat of everyone, but just Taking the edge off of that hypersensitivity, you realize that that'll, that'll go a long ways in helping you to get along with other people. And, again, figuring out God's will. Now, in verse four, he says, "For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. so We, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. A couple of things, and we've gone into, in our Ephesian studies, we've gone into detail about this, and when we were in 1 Corinthians, we did as well. But what I want to call your attention to is he's saying, you better understand we are all different. We have different gifts and different callings, different places within the body get over the fact that other people aren't like you. Get over the fact that they don't think that the same things that you think are funny are funny to them, or the things that, that you think are offensive are not offensive to them. No, we're all different. But we're all members of one body. If we're going to have to get along, we need to get over our differences. We're going to have to stop believing that I set the standard for what's acceptable in Christianity across the board. And it's really a horrible thing for Christians to judge other Christians, to condemn other Christians, to accuse other Christians. I've talked about this before. I think it's the most, one of the most insulting things to the Lord. And at the same time, It's one of the most dangerous things in terms of ever having effectiveness for yourself is once you begin to attack other members of the body because they don't see it your way, because they aren't like you. Now, the Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. I don't want to be the accuser of the brethren. Now, As I go through scriptures, I'll try to be faithful to what it says, and I want to call a spade a spade, but at the same time, I want to be careful that I am not ever saying that because someone's different than I am, therefore, you know, do away with them. We've talked about this before. There are a lot of different kinds of churches, and I'm really thankful that there are different kinds of churches. There are some churches where people really like to express themselves in a way that's greater than we might be comfortable with. And so during worship, people are dancing up and down the aisles and waving banners and shaking tambourines. And, you know, I can look at that and go, oh, that's so fleshly or that's so wrong. Or I can go, I'm glad there are churches that are like that because then people who like doing that kind of stuff aren't doing it in our church. And it's like, that's good i'm okay i'm I'm okay with that. I don't need to take shots at them for that. At the same time, you know there are churches that believe that a pastor ought to always wear a robe and and be very, very formal and I'm not going to take a shot at that. I've done it a few times i uh, I did a wedding a while back and and um, for Crystal and Sammy, and it was in a church that required the pastor to wear the whole vestments and everything and First when Ann saw me, she didn't recognize me. And when I came out to do the to do the wedding, I told I told Crystal that my dress was fancier than hers. <laughs> but <laughs> there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with wearing vestments. There's no, there's nothing wrong with wearing jeans and a t-shirt either. Different people are different. And personally I prefer if we would be comfortable with a greater variety of expressions of worship and things like that. I I think that there's even a certain arrogance in just deciding that we do it our way and, you know, that's okay. We ought to be open to different, different expressions. But also in a microcosm in the body of Christ, in the church, we find out that we're very different. It's funny, you know, when Every time we have something in the church that somebody comes and gripes about it, and somebody else comes and praises it, I realize how impossible it is to please everyone. The music's too loud and not loud enough. (laughs) The air conditioning is too cold, and it's stuffy and warm. (laughs) And it's like, wow, we are different. We are an assortment. But that's the way God wants it to be. But I guess at some point you have to decide, do you want to be with people different than you are and appreciate their differences? Or do we want to create homogeneous units whereby everyone is pretty much the same? I think it's sad when churches are just everyone looks alike. Okay, here's the yuppie church, here's the youth church, here's the old fogies church, here's the... Because we should be all of those things. I love that in our church, you know, we have, you know, young couples with kids, single people, we have old people that are, you know, on their final approach. We have, you know, and it's like, I like that. I I like being out in the the foyer and seeing walkers and strollers crashing into each other. Because that's what the body of Christ is supposed to be about. But because of our prejudice, Because of our sometimes our self-centeredness that causes us to be afraid of or put off by anyone who's different than we are, and we can pretend that we aren't prejudiced, but we all are. We're, We're programmed that way. It's a part of sin. It's a part of the fall. And so we're at first uncomfortable with people who are different than we are, and yet the full expression of who God is is only found as we Connect with people who are different than we are, and then you do that, and you have these experiences where you realize, Wow, this is incredible! I, you know, I mean, for me, I've been in churches in other parts of the country, and I can't understand what they're saying, but I can sense the spirit of God. I know we're worshiping the same God. I, oh, we're coming from different worlds, but that's the way the church is supposed to be, and and so. Paul is kind of laying this down before he begins to talk to us about serving in the church because he wants us to realize that we're not supposed to all look alike, be alike, feel alike. The truth is God brings weird people into your life to help expand your awareness. And by weird, I mean someone who's really different than you are. To run away from that is to deny the nature of the body of Christ. To embrace that and to rejoice in it, to accept it, is to make progress in terms of this incredible miracle of the church, the mystery of the church, the fact that you can take people from all different backgrounds and all different perspectives and all different emotional makeups and cultures and ethnic backgrounds and economic background, and everything else, and you can put them together and it works? Absolutely. And it doesn't work if you can't do that. The church will never be the church if we exclude people who offend our sensibilities, if we eliminate people who we don't think fit in with us. Now, again, there are some different expressions and things like that that are maybe appropriate in one place and not another and all. It's not just a mess. It's not just a hodgepodge. And yet we're all one church and God has a place for every one of us within the church. So what he is saying here to us is after he reminds us, get over yourself. And then he says, you know, there's a lot of members of the body. And all the members don't have the same function. But we're one body and individually members of one another. Until we can learn to be connected with each other, then um, we won't be what the body is supposed to be. And, you know, sometimes that means if I'm gonna be connected with people, I realize I can't, there are some things that I think about saying that if I say them, it's going to alienate people. So I you know, know there's some of you who just think, I just say whatever comes into my head. But really, if you were in my head, you would know that's not true. <laughs> but it also means that sometimes I'm probably going to say something that offends you. If you can't get over that, then how are we supposed to work together? We're, we're in the same body. And if you want to pray that God changes me and makes me more like you, Okay, that's fine. You can, you can do that. I'm not sure that God wants me to be more like you, though. Maybe God wants you to be more like me. Who knows? Or, <laughs> no, that wouldn't work. But in different ways and in different measures, he wants me to be more like you and you to be more like me. And that person that offends you may just be a person that God has brought into your life to help you to get over yourself. So let's read on. For as as, uh, we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let's use them, that's in italics kind of supplied. And now he begins to discuss some of the gifts and and the use of the gifts. And he says, if, if your gift is prophecy, then prophesy in proportion to our faith. So someone whose gift is to speak the word of God, to edification, exhortation, and comfort, as, as he describes in 1 Corinthians, they can only do that to the extent of the faith that they have. This is a gift of grace. Now, There are many of you who I know have gifts of prophecy. God just gives you the opportunity to say the right thing at the right time and it represents Him. And I've been the beneficiary of many times when some of you have said things to me or you come and you go, you know, I, I was thinking this and I was thinking that God said this and I'm like, that's exactly right. That's totally from the Lord. Well, you can only do that to the proportion of the faith that God has given you. So if you feel like, you know what? They were talking about how it's cool, sometimes God will give somebody a word for somebody else and they share it. That never happens to me. I can't ever remember God telling me something that I was supposed to go share with somebody else. That's okay. You don't have to do that. Don't, you don't start drumming it up. You know, this is what happens a lot of times in churches where they really put a big emphasis on body life and on sharing and often opening it up to, hey, if anybody has a word from the Lord. And, and you know, that in, a, in a small group, that works pretty well. The larger the group, the less well it works. But what I hear so often, you know, and I see this in afterglows, where, man, God will really be speaking. And then it just goes too far, and somebody comes up with some kooky thing that they say that's obviously not God, and you're like, "Well, what do you do?" You know, tell them to stop and don't do that. We we had it at a, a afterglow in a pastors' conference where it was really neat. God was really speaking. Then all of a sudden, some guy got up and started yelling at all the pastors, saying that if you don't speak in tongues, you have no business, you know, being a pastor and uh, And then somebody else stood up and said, God, I thank you that we don't have to do this. And You know, when people go beyond what God has really said to them, gifts get out of hand. You don't have to be somebody else. You don't have to. It's okay if nothing's being said. (laughs) One time, years ago at a pastor's conference, it started out really good, and then it you know, there are certain, like, prophecies that people always come up with when there's a lull in the action. Like, seems like everybody goes to Ezekiel, you know, and they're like, uh, thus saith the Lord, you're a valley of dry bones, and your bones are going to... It's like, I've heard that, thus saith the Lord, valley of dry bones thing so many times. I'm just like, I don't think God just keeps saying it all the time. But it was just going from bad to worse, and finally, one of the, one of the pastors at Calvary Costa Mesa, um, Bob Haig was sitting with me, and he said this, and he said it louder than he intended to say it, and it got quite a reaction, but he goes, he, he goes oh, my little children, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> if God gives you something to say, say it. But don't force it, don't push it, don't go beyond what he has to say. Just the measure of that which God, if God's given you a gift of, of sharing, uh, In any way, speaking his word or sharing your testimony or sharing the gospel or whatever, just do it. But don't make it more than it is. Don't try to create a bigger audience for yourself. Don't promote yourself. Get over yourself. If God speaks through you, great. If he doesn't, that's okay too. And then he goes on to say, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. So if your gift, and, and some of these gifts, you can argue about what they mean. The Bible never defines any of the spiritual gifts really completely. And so it's just assumed these are things that people are doing within the body of Christ as the Spirit leads. And so um, the, a gift of ministry um, would perhaps, you know, in, in uh, Ephesians talks about a gift of helps. And so that's probably what he's talking about, serving And so if your gift is serving, use it in our serving. (laughs) Just do what you have to do. Don't feel like because God has given you the gift of ministry that therefore he wants everyone else to do it too. A lot of times people have a gift and they're using it and then they get bummed because everyone else doesn't want to do it and no one else will participate. This happens a lot of times with people who have a real gift of intercessory prayer. They have such a burden to pray, and then they have a prayer meeting, and nobody shows up, and then they're mad, and you know, they want to burn the church down, and I you know no, there's no good Christians, because if you're a good Christian, you'd be into my thing of what I'm doing. His point is, no, if it's your gift, do your gift. Realize that people are different. We're not all the same. And so if you're gifted to serve, then serve. If that's your gift and very few people are showing up and helping, you should be glad cuz you have plenty of opportunity to do it. But don't don't do what, you know, is your gift and then pout about it. If it's really a pain for you, don't do it. God doesn't in the same way that he says don't give grudgingly or of necessity, he loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful servant too. And so, if you can't serve him freely, if you're going to start resenting other people or thinking they ought to pay you or you know whatever, maybe you shouldn't do it. Only do as much as he's telling you to do. Don't do things because there's a need. You know, Don't, don't take something on because it's like, man, somebody has to do it, so I better." No, there isn't anything in the church. there isn't anything in ministry that has to happen. I mean, with the possible exception that if I just decided not to show up on a Sunday, it might be a little awkward. But for the most part, hey, okay, if, if you see some trash and you want to pick it up and go dump it in the trash can, that's great. But what's going to happen if you don't? I don't know. I mean, it'll pile up. Eventually, somebody else is going to notice it. Somebody's going to do it. Don't feel like you have to do something just because you know, there's a need there. You do ministry because God has called you to ministry. And like Pastor Chuck used to always tell us, we're all on a one-day contract. If at any point you don't want to do ministry, don't do ministry. Nobody should be twisting your arm. Nobody should be guilting you into it. Just do what God's called you to do. Now, if God is calling you to do something and you're not doing it, shame on you. The body is really being hurt as a result. But if you're doing something because you've always done it, you're doing something because you really are impressed with the need, you're doing something because someone pressured you into it, that's not, what, that's not how the body works. All we'll get is a bunch of burned-out people if we do that. And, so, and, and then while you're doing it, then it keeps somebody else from doing it, doing what they're called to do. The same thing, he who teaches in teaching... The gift of teaching, the ability to take God's word and explain it to people. Whether it's to kids or to adults or whether it's one-on-one in a a small group in a Bible study, there are a whole lot of different reflections of this. Or whether it's teaching your own children and, and being an example to them and explaining things to them. It's an important gift. By the way, everyone doesn't have that gift. And so I have a problem with people who Try to guilt other people into, for instance, everyone ought to homeschool their kids. Now, I think if God's called you to homeschool your kids, it's a great thing to do. But you shouldn't make everybody feel like they ought to do it. Because I, I know some kids who are supposedly homeschooled. They're really, they aren't schooled at all. Parents hate doing it. They aren't, they're flaky on it. And, but somebody's made them feel guilty. Like, you ought to be a teacher whether you're gifted or not. Hey, if you're gifted and God calls you to do it, it's the highest calling you could ever have. But don't do what he hasn't called you to do. Don't do what he hasn't gifted you to do. Don't force it. Don't don't let someone make you do something that you don't feel God compelling you to do it. And going on through the gifts, he who exhorts in exhortation gift of exhortation is, I think, sometimes misunderstood. Some people think the gift of exhortation is just yelling at people and making them feel bad. But the word exhortation in the scriptures is the original word that comes from the same word as comforter, parakaleo. It's the same word. And what exhortation means is to be called alongside someone else. This is such an important gift. It's the gift to be able to come up and put your arm around somebody and let them know that they're not alone. Let them know that you are in this with them. And there are some people who just have an amazing gift of doing that. Sometimes it involves saying something. More often than not, I think that the gift of exhortation doesn't have anything at all to do with what you say. It's the ability to just be there with people, to be next to them to be called alongside of them, to let them know, hey, God sent you to me so that I can be with you and walk with you through what you're going through. And you know, I think sometimes people feel like if they have that gift, it's not enough. Quite often when people have a gift of exhortation, they think they also need to say something. Not necessarily. I mean, you do what God has gifted you to do. Just because you have a gift of of exhortation, of parakaleo, also doesn't mean that it's your responsibility to give to the people, like to put your arm around them and stick some money in their pocket. Giving is a whole separate gift. But exhortation, it's enough to be there with them. That's That's what the gift of exhortation does. He who gives with liberality... And if you have a gift of giving, give generously. Now, all of these gifts are in one way or another things that we're all commanded to do. The thing that makes it a gift is that this is something that is your thing. This is something that you are excessively, you know, called to do. And so, I mean, every Christian is commanded to give. You know, I would really question if... You don't feel like you want to give to the lord's work or you know you got to wonder whether you realize even what it is to be saved but at the same time there are some people who just are driven to give sacrificially all the time that that's their big thing now again it's okay to give and not preach or give and not exhort or give and not, you know everyone has their gift and so he says hey If your gift is giving, then certainly do it freely, with you know, with liberality, generously. And uh, he says, um, "He who leads, he who has a gift of administration or a gift of leading other people, do it with diligence." Now, it would be good to probably do all the gifts with diligence. Um, and some of these descriptive terms would work on any of the gifts. The idea is, hey, if you're a leader, then lead, and and don't be afraid to utilize that gift. How do you know if you're a gifted leader? I don't know. Are people following you? There are some people who think that they have a gift of leadership, but nobody would ever follow them anywhere. You know, that's not a gift of leadership. In the same way that the gift of exhortation, called alongside somebody, if when you come up and put your arm around someone, they file a restraining order, that's probably not your gift, you know? (laughs) There are some people who could come up and put their arm around you and you won't be offended at all. Um, Everybody should get one mulligan, and then after that, it's just like, okay, maybe that's not my thing. (laughs) But with all the gifts, I think you experiment a little and you do them. And so with leadership... You try leading people and see what kind of a following you have. But if that's your gift, then you need to do it with all your heart. We desperately need people who will take leadership in all different areas of ministry. And here's the problem, and here's why it he says to be diligent if your gift is, is leading so often as we have read the first part, and we're going, okay, don't think of myself more highly than I ought to think. And so, but now how do I lead? And I know this is something that I struggle with sometimes. I I, I sincerely don't want to be the figurehead of the church. I don't want to be, you know, to be Dave Rolfe's church and all this kind of stuff. I hate that whole, you know, that whole trip. But at the same time, I am the pastor of the church, and I am called to lead the church. And sometimes I need the Lord to prod me to actually take the leadership and make some decisions and do things that need to be done. Because like most people, I tend to be a people pleaser. And sometimes to really lead with diligence means that I have to tell someone no. I have to say, we're not going to do this project. We're going to take on this one. We will support this. We won't support that. And it's hard because in our society, the leaders are the ones who are the most important. It's all about the leaders. And so often this is carried over in churches where the purpose of the church is to promote the leader of the church. And it's all about him. And so I would never want to do that. And yet, at the same time, I can't afford to then not use the gifts that God has called me to use. And, and that's partly what he's saying here is, hey, don't apologize for doing something that God has called you to do. Don't stop short of using your gifts simply because your gift might put you up in front, or your gift might be one that, if it's misused, could be abused. I know there are a lot of people who probably have a gift to lead in one area or another, and maybe God has even given them a vision for a particular ministry, but they're afraid to take the leadership because they are afraid to appear to be puffing up their own importance. But we're all of equal importance. We all have equal places within the body. And if people who really are gifted in leadership won't lead, then guess what? People who aren't gifted in leadership will. And that's a, that's a huge problem. And so again, his exhortation is, if that's your gift, then you do it with diligence. You get after it. And then the one who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Someone with a gift of mercy. Someone with a gift of just caring about other people. What an important gift this is. And we have people within our body who are, I mean, I'm looking around this room and I see several people that I instantly know that person has a gift of mercy. And, and, and that's a beautiful thing. But notice it's, if your gift is mercy, do it with cheerfulness. <laughs> see, so often what we would do in the flesh is, oh, I feel so bad for you that I'm going to feel bad with you. I'm going to, you know, oh, I, you know, you're going through so much, now I'm going to make you feel even worse by, <laughs> by showing mercy to you. Remember, we're a body, we affect each other. And frankly, someone who is in need of mercy doesn't need sympathy. Sympathy and mercy are two different things. Mercy is when you go, you give somebody what they don't deserve. And, and you don't give them what they do deserve. A gift of mercy comes alongside and says, let me give you a different perspective. Let me cheer you up. Now, some people have the capacity to talk to you when you're hurting, and they really will make you feel better. And that's a, that's a great thing. We, we need that desperately. There are some other people whose gift seems to be, you're feeling fine, until you talk to them. (laughs) And then now you're like, the life has just been sucked out of you. Those kind of people usually sit by themselves. Sorry, I'm not referring to any of you, but in life, it just drives people away. But man, somebody will be like a magnet if in their expression of mercy, in coming to someone who needs mercy, they actually build you up and make you feel better. And our our goal in showing mercy should be to help somebody to realize it's not as bad as you think. You know, get out of your pity party. See, the gift of mercy is not the gift of pity. We need to, backing up to the beginning of the chapter, we've got to get over ourselves. We can't be so stinking sensitive. We cannot afford to be having our feelings hurt all the time. And so the best person who can really show mercy is a person who can do it with cheerfulness. They're grateful to be able to share with you a different perspective, a different angle, a different look at things. And so, you know, and, and, you know, the other thing is sometimes when you have a gift of mercy, it can wear you out. Because so often, as you're trying to show mercy to people, they don't get over it so quickly. They are hurting. And Hurt people hurt people. And so when you try to reach out to hurt people, often they'll hurt you. And that just happens, and it, it can become really painful. And, and your desire is to give them mercy, and yet what happens often is you, you, they do a job on you. And so even with a gift of mercy, God doesn't want us to do it to the point that it's painful, to the point that it makes us miserable. He doesn't want us to pour every last sap of energy out of ourselves for someone else. And he doesn't want us to do any ministry unless we can do it happily. If you can't cheerfully talk to somebody who's having a hard time, don't talk to them. If you're gonna end up resenting what you've done for them avoid them for a while again get over yourself god doesn't god needs all of us to do everything that he wants to do but none of us should feel that we're indispensable and none of us should ever pour ourselves out to the point that we don't have anything left and if you really can't be there for someone and be happy to do it don't do it Don't do it out of compulsion. By doing that, you misrepresent God. You know, you you end up making God sound like a, a nagging person who's fed up with you. Remember why Moses didn't get to go into the promised land after all that time in the desert? God wanted to give the people water out of the rock. And originally, water came out of the rock when it was struck by his stick, this time God said, speak to the rock. But Moses was fed up with the people. He was sick and tired of these crybabies out in the desert. And so he began to lecture the people about how he and God are fed up with you. What do we have to do with you? And instead of speaking to the rock, he struck the rock. Water came out because God knew the people needed water. But God said, Moses, you misrepresented me. That's a serious thing. And of course, he also messed up the typology because Jesus is the rock and he would only need to be struck once for everyone's sin. But I wonder how many times when when we even are in the name of serving God, we serve God in such a way that we make him look so bad. We make people think that God is angry. We make people believe that God is impatient, that he's running out of, you know, his holding back and he's just about to destroy everyone. Man, sometimes you people make God so mad. Be careful, because God wants us to serve him cheerfully. The power of ministry is the ability to minister in a way that makes ministry look like something desirable the power of the christian life is being able to go through our christian life and rise above the circumstances and to be able to find victory and joy and fulfillment as we live our lives the joy of the lord is your strength right and so God just says, you know what? If you can't do it joyfully, just don't do it. If you're going to tell people that you're a Christian and then you're all angry at them and and fussy and irritable and and everybody's, you know, treat you with kid gloves, just shut up about being a Christian. Don't even go there with people because serving God only works when you do it cheerfully. If you're resenting it, You're either doing it too much, you're doing it for the wrong reasons, or you haven't learned the lesson of the first few verses to get over yourself before you begin to serve God. You have to get over yourself before you can ever serve God effectively. And because some people skip over those verses, they then believe that they can be a martyr, you know, poor suffering person who's serving God, and now everybody else has to kiss up to you, everybody else has to be sensitive to you, everybody else has to be careful, walking on eggshells around you. Hey, we shouldn't be that way. He, he's given us a privilege to serve him. And if we do it in a way that it doesn't look like we're enjoying it, we shouldn't do it. Anything that God asks you to do. Including if there's ever any money that you're going to put in the offering plate and you're feeling like, ooh, I hate to do this, don't do it. You don't, you know, everything will be fine. You know, I mean, sure, the church has needs, but God's going to take care of us or, you know, we'll meet at the park or something. It's no big deal. God doesn't need any of us. God doesn't, He's not. So often, people give the idea that God's love got him into a real mess and now we need to bail him out by helping God out. Man, I'll tell you something. If somebody, if I hear somebody saying, you know, our ministry may have to go off the air unless God's people will give, I would go, please, nobody send them money. Let's see what happens. Maybe God doesn't want them on the air. Man, I remember when. Oral Roberts, you know, there's a 700-foot-tall Jesus came to him and said, I'm going to kill you unless you raise $20 million or whatever it was. I was like, please, 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 don't send your money in. Let's see what happens, you know? <laughs> well, he's dead, so I shouldn't talk about him like that. But, <laughs> but how, you know, we can laugh at that. But how many of us in our little way resent what we do for the Lord? Or resist it because, you know, for some reason, what, we don't think he's worth it? Or we're just worn out? Hey, if there's anything in the area of serving God that you can't do cheerfully, do not do it. Don't do it. Because you're bringing disrepute on him. In fact, if there's any ministry that you're involved in and it's becoming a real pain for you, take some time off. You'll find out. It'll be okay without you. But what are they going to do? Without... They'll figure it out. It'll be okay. Somebody else will get a blessing of being able to do what it is that you're doing until you can come back and do it with the right attitude, realizing that I'm doing what I'm born to do. I'm doing what God has called me to do. It's a privilege for me to do what I'm doing. For too long, we've insulted God by treating Him like some pathetic charity that we all need to kick in in order to help him out. He doesn't need any of us. Now, some of you may be offended by that. Whoa, you're making it sound like none of us matter. Yeah, none of us matter. (laughs) But, I mean, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. You know, don't always be stomping your foot and threatening to quit. If that's the way you feel, just quit. If it's not a privilege, if it's not the joy of your life to serve God, by all means, don't do it. You know, it's one reason God has been trying to get this into our heads ever since creation. It's why he he designed the Sabbath. It's not so that there's a magic day that, you know, where you only worship God on that day. The Sabbath wasn't about worshiping God. It was about doing nothing. God rested on the seventh day after six days of creation. Why did he rest? And why does he set that example for us? Because he wants us to realize that if we just stop for 24 hours, the world keeps revolving. What he has started will continue. It's okay without us. It's the same reason also why he calls us to tithe, And I don't believe that tithing is necessarily a specific commandment in the New Testament. I think that we should really give much more than 10%. But God wants us to learn that we can let go. We can take... I mean, every one of us thinks we need every penny we have. So God says, here, let me take this part away from you. And you realize, wow, I can actually get by on less than I thought I could. It's also why God commanded people to fast. Because every time I eat, I think I'm going to die if I don't. It's like, I've, I'm, I'm famished. I'm, I'm, I'm dying of hunger. And God goes, "Why don't you stop eating for a while?" And you'll realize, "I'll oh, be darn. I, you know I'm really OK. I can handle not eating, just like I can handle eating. Less or different things or whatever. There's a freedom to realizing that you don't have to eat as much as you do. You don't have to go seven days a week. You don't have to spend every penny that you make. You can take away some of that. And guess what? You have to rely on God. God has to be God during that time. And in the same way, I'm telling you, if your cheerful quotient starts going down, quit serving them. Don't do it until you feel that joy and that freedom to do it again. Because the burden that we carry of feeling like I have to do this inflates our own importance, it puts unnecessary pressure on us, and we're carrying burdens that He has not designed us to carry. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. If your yoke isn't easy and if your burden isn't light, you're carrying something or you're carrying it with a motivation that he doesn't want you to have. So stop. Dump it. Let it go. Even in your mind, just decide, yeah, I don't have to do that. And then find out what you want to do. There, it, it's miserable to be doing something, even though you want to do it, if you feel like you have to do it. Nobody wants to feel like they have to do stuff. We don't have to do anything. That's the message of the gospel. He has done it all. We're set. We're covered. We're fine. We don't have to do anything. Now, we get to do things if we want. But what if somebody says they don't want to do anything? Don't do anything. Be fine. Don't do anything more than you can do cheerfully because you're not doing anyone a favor if you do. Then he goes on to say, let love, verse 9, be without hypocrisy. Let your love be real. So often in getting along with others, we learn the lesson that, you know what, people can't handle me the way I am, so I better fake it. I better fake love. I better act like I care. Don't settle for that. Real love doesn't require hypocrisy. You need to tunnel down a little deeper if you, if you don't really care about people. Don't pretend like you do. Let love be without hypocrisy. And then abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Keep a, keep a clear sense of right and wrong. Not for others, but for you. Look in your life, and when there are things that you're doing that are evil, hate that. Realize that's what's messing you up. And, and turn away from that and hang on to that which is good. Hang on to that which God is doing that is such a blessing to you. And you know, our time's almost up. I guess I'm not going to finish the chapter this week either. Um, <laughs> we'll break there and pick up next week. Let's pray. Lord, you sure know us we're reading about these exhortations that were made almost 2,000 years ago to Christians in Rome. And it's still so much the same today. We are so prone to inflate our own sense of self-importance. And the result of that inflation is that we're always getting offended, we're always worrying what people think of us. We're, we're treating each other in a phony way because we're afraid that if we are ourselves, if we're sincere, that we'll be rejected. And I know the body just wasn't designed to work that way. Help us to give each other permission to be ourselves. And help each of us to get over ourselves and to find out what our gifts are and just to do our gifts, just to do what we're called to do, and to do it with the best attitude possible, Lord. Teach us these lessons in a real practical way so that we can get along with others, so that we can see your kingdom advance, so that we can see glory come to you as people look at, our, at us together and They're amazed that people as different as we are can get along the way we do. And it can only happen because of your spirit. So by your spirit, Lord, please help us to to do this, to learn to live this way. We need your help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Steve, everything go okay at the city council meeting?